Uh, hey, when's the last time you found yourself in a desperate situation? When's the last time you found yourself in a uh, desperate situation? Well, my wife and I, Kristen, got to go to Mexico a few years ago on an all-inclusive resort. And so while we're there, we're in the Cancun, Puerto Vallarta area. And there's this little, um, there's this little island off of Cancun called Cozumel. And we're like, hey, let's do a day trip to Cozumel. We'll rent a moped. We'll ride around on it. We'll get some uh, dinner. We'll get some good food. We'll hang out on the beach. It'd be great, right? So that was our plan. But you have to take a little ferry because it's an island. So you have to take a little ferry over there. Now, my wife, Kristen, is like very seasick, like very weak in that regard. She's strong in every other way, but seasick, that is not one thing. That's not her strength. And I'm decently seasick. So I'm pretty normal. Anytime I'm like on the ocean, I'm going to take Dramamine. I'm going to take some stuff. So I told Kristen, hey, should we stop and pick up some Dramamine before we go? And she's like, no, like it's a ferry. Like it's just a quick little thing. It's a jot over to Cozumel. Like we're going to be okay. And it's like a big, it's a big thing. I'm like, okay. So we don't get Dramamine. Not a good mistake. Mistake number one, okay? So we're hanging out. We're on the ferry. We're going. And I immediately know this is not going to be good. Like two minutes in, I knew. It's like, it's this big ferry, but it felt like you were in a kayak. Like, I don't know what it was about the water or the boat or whatever, but we were just like rocking. And I'm looking and everyone's like got their head down, like just not feeling good. And uh, so I look over to Kristen. Sure enough, she's just like... You know that time where you're just trying to hold back, like getting sick, you're just like pleading with God. You know, she's desperate, like, God, please don't, you know, please keep this in. And so, and so I start to kind of look around. By the way, I, I'm feeling sick too, okay? And so I'm looking around and I'm trying to find like a little bag, like a little throw bag, nothing, okay? There's not, and it's like, it's a ferry in Mexico. Like it wasn't a thing like I had expected either, but I'm looking and I'm rubbing her back and, and finally I look and she's like shaking her head. I'm like, you're gonna get sick? She's like, yeah, yeah, So I look, desperate times, call for desperate measures, right? I look around and the headrest in front of us, there was a cover on it and I just sweep the cover off and I go like this and Kristen just gets sick in the headrest cover, you know? And, but it made, it made me sick and, it made everyone else sick. So I'm like, and so I run around looking for Banyo. I'm just looking for Banyo. I'm like, I took Spanish one in high school. I'm like, you know, where is it? And I find it. I go in there. I slam it shut. I lock the door. And I just was so sick. Like I was so sick in there. I'm sitting on this Mexican ferry bathroom, like just like, just like aching. And there's people banging on the door. It was just a solo little thing. It's dirty too. And I'm like, Anything I knew about Jesus, I threw away in that moment. I was like, I'm selfish. Like, I need to be in here. I'm, I'm going to get sick still. And so they're banging on. <laughs> the ferry was a 12-minute drive, by the way. Like, it was 12 minutes, all that happened, okay? But it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare, right? Um, desperate times call for desperate measures. But hey, um, as I've been thinking about this theme of desperation, this idea of desperation, my conclusion is that desperation is the last emotion we want to feel. You, you with me on that? Like, like, I don't like being mad, but I am way more comfortable being mad than I am desperate. I, if you know me, like personally, I do not like being sad, but I would no doubt rather be crying and sad than desperate. Desperation is the last emotion that we willingly want to walk in. And yet God does something really unique through desperation, doesn't he? And in Luke chapter eight, we see these people who could not be any more different and yet together they are united through this desperate reality where they have no other option, they have no other hope, they have no other way but to fall at Jesus' feet. And so here's the main point, my only point for the whole sermon that I want us to drill into our heads. And I think we forget this, a lot can change in our lives. Um, but here's the point, is that desperate situations direct us to a dependable savior. Desperate situations direct us to a dependable 
Savior. So that's what we're going through. We're just literally going to walk verse by verse. I normally have a couple points. We're just doing this one point to drill it in. We're going to walk through the story. So if you've got a Bible, Luke 8, uh, verse 40. If you don't have a Bible, we have free ones. You can ask me or one of the staff, or they might be around the corner. We'd love to get you a Bible. Verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, verse 40 sounds like an awesome start, right? Like these people were great. They really love Jesus. They're really for him. But Luke, in his Gospels, through this book, consistently points out the crowd and Jesus' popularity, and not really in a good way. Like we talked last week about Jesus and the parable of the sower and the soils, and how when Jesus sees the crowd, he doesn't get excited, he gets concerned. And that would be the same feeling he had with his crowd. When it says they're waiting on him, it's not like they're waiting for him to call them to repentance or teach them something deeply profound and hard to internalize. They're waiting for me. Miracles. They're, they're waiting for the supernatural. They're waiting for Jesus' show. Like, hey, what are you, what's he going to do today? So that sets the stage. This crowd is packed around him, and this sets the stage. Now, verse 41. Now, there was a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter and 12 years of age, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Okay, so this is significant. Um, whenever you're reading the Bible, you're trying to understand, like, what did this mean to them then? Not just us now, like, don't go there quick. What did it mean to them then? So to understand the context, a ruler of a synagogue is significant. That's what this guy Jairus is, one of the main characters. Now, there was one temple, uh, and the temple was in Jerusalem. And in the temple, that's where they would, that's where they would perform sacrifices uh, to God. That's where they would... Um, uh, that's where the holies, Holy of Holies is, like significant one temple. But because they had people spread all around, they would have synagogues in different towns and stuff like that. So a synagogue was essentially pretty similar to what our local church would be today. They would get together, they would pray, they would sing songs, uh, scripture would be read, and then someone would teach on it. And so you would have a ruler of the synagogue that would be responsible to plan all of that out. So the ruler of the synagogue would decide what songs we're going to sing and what passage is going to be read and who's going to teach it and that whole thing. Thing. And Jairus, this guy, is the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, the last time Jesus was in Capernaum in the synagogue in Luke 4, he cast a demon out of a guy, and it kind of proved to be a pretty controversial moment. And so that's kind of Jesus' run-in with Jairus so far. But you have to understand this. As you look at Jesus' life, the primary group of like antagonists, like Jesus' proverbial villain or, or enemy against him, are Jewish religious leaders rulers of the synagogues, um, Pharisees, like whatever it might be, but Jewish religious leaders were the people that caused Jesus the most trouble. People like Jairus. They would get together. They'd call him a false teacher. They hated the way he hung out with the sinners. He hated the way he hung out with prostitutes and, and people who drank all the time. And, and they hated the way he taught about God. They just felt like it was irreverent or wasn't following whatever it might be. But they accused him. And ultimately, rulers of the synagogues or Pharisees were the people that were responsible for getting Jesus killed. Okay? So add all that up and we get Jairus this ruler of a synagogue, Jewish religious leader, and he is now at the feet of Jesus begging him to heal his daughter. Do you see how opposite that is? And I know there are some exceptions like Nicodemus, but again, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Like it was like this, and it was even curiosity. He didn't express faith in him in that moment, but Nicodemus was an exception to the rule, but 99.9% .9 of these religious Jewish leaders were angry at Jesus, and Jairus finds himself on his face begging Jesus to heal his daughter. And you have to ask the question, how? Like, how did ruler of a synagogue, 
find himself at Jesus' feet professing his faith. And in Mark 5, verse 23, Mark tells the same story in his gospel. And he says, this is what he, the Jairus actually said word for word. He said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. He expresses this faith in Jesus and it would be so counterintuitive. So for most scholars believe for Jairus to do this to Jesus would, have mean, would mean that he would lose his friends and most likely have lost his job. Because all these other rulers of the synagogue and these Pharisees are condemning Jesus. Stay away from him. Don't believe him. And for Jairus to find himself at Jesus' feet, expressing this faith that if you just touch her, she'll be made well, would mean that if Jesus is a false teacher, so are you if you're endorsing it. You track with me? He'd lose everything. But what's he risking it for? His dying daughter. And if there are any dads in here, just simply, is there anything you wouldn't do for your daughter? No way. Who cares if I lose my friends? Who cares if I lose my job? I don't want to lose my daughter and I'll risk everything for that. And that's where Jairus finds himself in a totally desperate situation. He finds himself doing the unthinkable. This controversial Jesus, the Jesus that they had talked about in groups of these Jewish religious leaders of condemning Jesus and how could he do that? But Jairus had heard in those meetings that Jesus was doing something that no one else could do. And Jairus goes, this is my only hope. This, this is my only option. And he finds himself in this desperate situation directed to a dependable savior. But that's not the craziest part. It finishes, so look at the middle of verse 42. He says, you know, 12 years of age and she was dying. And my favorite, honestly, probably my favorite verse, words in this whole section is as Jesus went. As Jesus went. It communicates this sense of like immediacy, like urgency. Like Jairus asks and Jesus goes. Point blank, simple, simple thing. And that might not sound very profound to you, but remember, rulers of the synagogues were antagonistic to Jesus. They were, they were slowing him down. They were hurting his friends and his ministry. They were questioning him. They were the enemy. And for Jesus to just so quickly go, for an enemy to come and say, can you help me? And him go, yeah, let's go, let's go. There was no deliberation. There was no delay. There was no questioning. It was almost like the instinct of Jesus' mercy kicked in and he went, no doubt, I wanna help you. See, this is profound because Jesus doesn't just say love your enemies, he shows it. Like this guy that's hurt Jesus' ministry, most likely he just goes, as Jesus went, it was like, wasn't even a thought. And I want you to know that this is our story too. If you've been an enemy to Jesus, if you've stiff-armed him your whole life, if you've refused his grace, fought against it, if you've made fun of Christians or hurt Christians, in a single moment, he welcomes you. In a split second, he pours a waterfall of grace over you in an instant. It's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't make you earn it. That He doesn't push away those who've pushed him away. If you're willing to bow and acknowledge all the ways that you've failed and all the ways Jesus has succeeded for you, salvation comes. There's no delay there's no deliberation. It's just an instinct of mercy and grace. This is who Jesus is. He goes immediately. Jairus, the synagogue leader, most likely an antagonist to Jesus, falls on his feet and asks for help, and Jesus goes immediately. It's amazing. But then it says in the rest of verse 42, a little problem arises. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So remember that crowd of people that were looking for the miracle? They got their phones out for the Instagram and for TikTok. Let me get this miracle on film, right? I'm gonna blow up. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna be an influencer, right? They're ready for it. They're excited. And as Jesus goes, yeah, Jairus, let's go. Let's go get your daughter. It's like, boom, 
and it immediately stops and there's this huge crowd around them. And, the, and they're trying to squeeze through. Remember that word pressed around we talked about last week, the parable of the sower, that the thorn, it's choked out by the thorns. It's the same language. So if my daughter is downstairs in the kids ministry and they're like, hey, she's choking, some, we need to find a paramedic and Jack is, or Jack is skilled in CPR, I'm like, boom, and I grab Jack, can you go help Gracie? Yeah, let's go. And I grab him. But as I grab him, everyone stands up and moves in. It's gonna take so long to get downstairs. And if I'm Jairus, trying to get to my dying daughter and you guys are in the way, I just want you to know you're not gonna see a good side of me. Is that okay? <laughs> like, I'm not super tough, but I'll start swinging, okay? Like, I just like, just like, get away, like, just like crazy. But this is, this is the reality for a, a desperate dad trying to save his dying daughter. He'll do anything. And the crowd pressed around, he's going, this isn't a moment for your observation, my daughter's dying and she needs saved. Move out of the way. Put your phones down. I need to get to my daughter. I need to get Jesus. My daughter, please make a way. And yet they just press around him. And if Jairus felt desperate in that moment, like any of us would, being slowed down by a crowd trying to get to his dying daughter, it gets even worse for Jairus. Look at verse 43. Verse 43. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Okay, so among this crowd pressing in on Jesus, slowing him and Jairus down, um, there's an unnamed woman who had been uh, making her way through the wave of people and had been bleeding for 12 years. So I just wanna point out three things that make her situation particularly desperate. Three things. Number one is duration duration. She had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, being sick is the worst, is it not? Like, we all hate being sick. But the only thing worse than being sick is being sick for a long time. Okay, is that fair to say? Like, you get sick, you're like, ah, everyone gets sick. All right, I'll be back on my feet in two days. And then seven days later, you're not better, and you're like, what is going on? Like, anxiety raises, frustration grows, and you're just like, I want to be back to normal, and I can't. There's nothing worse than being sick for a long time. And she has been sick. She's had this, uh, this discharge of blood for 12 entire years. But that's not it. Duration isn't the only reason it's desperate. The second reason is distance. So not just duration, but distance. So Leviticus chapter 15 is explaining kind of the law of how to interact with a woman that's bleeding or for a bleeding woman to interact with other people. And especially, particularly, if you're bleeding after your menstrual cycle. It's a whole thing. Um, I'm gonna do a devotional about it next week. I'm kidding, no. But anyways, um, <laughs> Here's the gist of it. So in case you guys want to read Leviticus 15 in your quiet time this week, you do it. But I'll give you the gist of it. The woman that is unclean, the woman that's bleeding is unclean while she's bleeding. Um, and anyone that touches her is unclean when, while she's unclean and she's bleeding. But furthermore, anything she touches becomes unclean. And anything that someone, if anyone touches what she has touched, you become unclean. So it's not just like, hey, you stay over here, Patty, and I'm gonna be here. It's like, no, no, no. If she's like sitting on a chair and you sit on a chair, you're unclean. So here's what that means. She has not been invited in someone's house for 12 years. She's not sat on a chair that someone, 12 years. She, she didn't get to hug anyone, embrace anyone. I mean, completely alone and completely distant. Scholars believe that if she was married, her husband would have divorced her by now. If she had kids, you're not taking them to school 
You're not doing a first, pic, uh, first day of school picture with them. You're not getting to hug them on their birthdays or throw a party. There's no normal dinners around the table. Everything has been robbed from her. And because she's unclean, she can't go to the temple to perform sacrifices. So she's also distant from God. Like in every single way, she has lost everything. She, 12 years and completely distant. And the last reason it's desperate is that she is completely despondent. She is completely despondent. She is hopeless. It says in here that she spent all her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone. What that communicates is a sense of like deep searching. She, there wasn't a doctor that she hasn't seen. There isn't a medicine that she hasn't tried. She's done everything human possible humanly possible. She spent every last penny for the doctors to make her better, and the resounding theme is nothing will work. Nothing is helping. In fact, Mark 5 goes a little bit further. It says she suffered under many doctors and became no better, rather grew worse. I mean, this is a nightmare that you just keep trying to wake up from, right? You've lost everything, including any hope that can be better. But there's a man that she's heard about named Jesus that can do what doctors can't do and that doesn't charge anything. A Jesus who embraces the outcast and the people that everyone else pushes away, especially religious leaders, this Jesus is different. And maybe for the first time in a long time, she felt that forgotten sensation of hope. Maybe maybe Jesus could heal me. But how am I gonna get to him? right? Because I'm an outsider and anyone I touch now becomes unclean. So what am I going to do, right? And so here's verse 44, verse 44. And she came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. (laughs) Desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And so she rebels. She makes her way into a packed crowd. Remember, any bump, oop, sorry, you're unclean. Boop, sorry, you're unclean. Oh, and by the way, and then when you're unclean, the person you bump, is unclean too. And so she's making her way through this crowd. She's been shooed away from every social situation. People know her. She's probably got her head down. She's probably disguised in some way. And she's just trying to get her way just so she can reach out to Jesus. And she does, and she's trembling, and she reaches, and she just barely touches the uh, edge of his garment. And then boom, she's healed. The 12 years of hopelessness is reversed in a moment. The, the, the countless amount of money she spent on doctors is, is irrelevant. She's healed. Hooray. It's amazing. Jesus, just by her barely touching him, healed her. It's awesome, but it doesn't end there. She's not off the hook. There's more here for her. So look at verses 45 and 46. It says, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me. This is key, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. So uh, my wife and I went to the Garth Brooks concert a couple weeks ago. Anybody else went to the Garth Brooks concert? Yeah, it was awesome. Okay, maybe not as many people, but uh, we need to pray for you. But uh, you're like a pastor praying for me to go to Garth Brooks. Anyways, uh, (laughs) um, uh, but we went there and it was crowded. It was packed. It was crazy. 90,000 people. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, But when we were trying, especially when we were leaving, it was just so packed. You know, after a Husker game, like whatever. Um, but it was so packed, and so I have Kristen's hand, and I'm just like pioneering my way through the crowd. You know, I'm just like pushing through, and everyone's bumping you and going their own direction, and it feels like we have lost all sense of etiquette in those moments, you know, and we're breathing in so much cigarette smoke that I felt like, I just want to confess to you guys, I think I smoked a cigarette 
cigarette through passive inhalation that day, that night, you know, like just to let you know. And so it was just like crazy, but you're just so close to everybody bumping in. It's hot, it's sweaty, you're moving away. And so, and I think this is a glimpse into what Jesus or in Jairus was happening, right? And so Peter's like, Jesus is like, hey, who, who touched me? And if you're at the Garth Brooks concert trying to leave and get to your car and, someone, and, and the person you're with is like, who touched me? You'd be like, literally 90,000 people touched you. 90,000 people touched you, you know? Uh, and, and, and so Peter's like, dude, what do you mean? Like, we're in a mosh pit. Like, we're finding our car after Garth Brooks. We're at City Light trying to find a seat, you know? Like, just like normal things. Like, everyone touched you, you know? Um, and Jesus says, no, no, no. Someone touched me. This is key. I perceive power went out from me to this person. And if you miss this, you miss the whole thing. Essentially, especially in a room full of people like this, Jesus is pointing out there is a massive difference between brushing up against him and trusting him in faith, touching him in faith. This huge crowd, they think they're following Jesus because they showed up. They're here on a Sunday morning. They're ready. They're waiting. They're watching. They're going while he goes. They just think by proximity that I'm one of yours or whatever. But Jesus pauses and says, no, no, no. This touch was different from the rest. Although everyone else touched him, no power went out to them. But specifically power went out to this woman. So you have to ask the question, what set it apart? What made power go out to her? Because I kind of want to know, right? Like, we should want to know. And that's what verses 47 through 48 answer. 47 through 48. And when the woman saw that she wasn't hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She basically got to share her testimony. Verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This moment Jesus is showing is pure faith, not just fandom. It is believing in Jesus, not just mingling around Jesus. So there's a, a friend in our church, his name's Mitch, and um, he's been coming to City Light for the last few months, and at our baptism gathering a couple weeks ago, um, outside, we're hanging out, Brett preaches an amazing sermon on the prodigal son, several people share their, their testimonies, I mean, it was just like one of the most unreal mornings, it was awesome, and I felt like Jesus was just on the move, I'm like, the gospel is so clear and present, like, I think Jesus might be saving people this morning, and so I just had a moment, if you were there, just said, hey, if there's anyone that has given their lives to Jesus and hasn't been baptized, would you just consider talking to one of the pastors, let's, under, let's see if you understand the gospel, and if you understand what baptism is, and if you do, let's get you dunked today, like, we get here's a t-shirt, you know, let's go. And so I think like five people got baptized spontaneously. It was awesome, along with the other 25 that had planned. And, um, and one of those people was my friend named Mitch. And Mitch, uh, we had our, you know, was hearing the gospel. It's clear. I think you get it. Baptism, why do you want to do it? So he gets ready to get baptized. He gets in the tank. No one prompted him on this. No one told him what to say. And we go, hey, Mitch, why do you want to get baptized? And here's what he said word for word. My life, my whole life, I've been a churchgoer. Until 20 minutes ago, I became a Christ follower. And, and I'm telling you, I, I think I like lost it. I was freaking out like, yes, like just roaring for Jesus. Thank you. This is the prayer. In a, in a society that is so like just familiar with Christianity, it's so easy to be a church goer, but are you a Christ follower? And I'm just, you know, Jesus pushed Mitch past religion and past church going and past morality and pushed him into a personal relationship with Jesus through grace alone and faith alone. I just, I have to wonder in a room full of people, are there 
some in this room who are simply churchgoers and not yet Christ followers. People that are in the crowd and they're watching Jesus and you're you're thinking you're saved but have never actually reached out in genuine desperate faith to Jesus. And one of the saddest things about this story is that the crowd was so excited for Jesus' power to go out but they never got to experience it within. And they were okay with that, with the public kind of relationship with Jesus but never a personal one. I'm going like, I, I hate, I, it makes me so sad when I talk to people that have said, I've tried out Christianity, I've tried out Jesus, and it's boring. And I'm like, I think you, and I don't think you tried the right Jesus. Like, I don't think you actually experienced who he really is. I don't think you experienced his power. I don't think you reached out in faith. And I'm going like, I just begging Jesus to move people past church going into actually following Jesus and see this radical, intimate, beautiful relationship with him. And this is crazy. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, I don't know about you guys, but some of my favorite stories of Jesus are him interacting with women. They're, I mean, amazing. Woman at the well, the uh, woman caught in adultery, the woman washing it, like all these things. And this is the only time Jesus ever calls anyone daughter. Is this woman who's completely distant, 12 years, social outcast, spiritual outcast, and he calls her daughter. Why? Because she's now adopted. She's now a true daughter of the king. Jesus used this as intimate language. And in the phrase, um, made you well, is the Greek word sozos, which means to save. So Jesus is saying, I didn't just help you with your biggest, with your problem of bleeding. I helped you with your bigger problem, which is sin and separation from God. That's what really matters. Because Jesus could have healed her bleeding problem and she could have walked away and spent eternity away from God, but he heals what she really needs, which is her broken soul, which is her sinful soul. And he saves it. That's why he ends with saying, go in peace. In other words, you now have peace with God. You are now saved into this relationship. And you have to ask, how did this happen? How did this, her, him calling her daughter, your faith has saved you, go in peace. How did that happen? It didn't happen by her writing a check. It didn't happen by her going through a 10-week course. It didn't happen through her going on a mission trip or proving herself or pulling herself up by her bootstraps. It came by a trembling act of faith reaching out to Jesus and he saved. Faith alone, freely. And that's our story. That's the invite that Jesus gives us to. Now this moment is beautiful, isn't it? Like to see this woman, it's totally despondent, totally hopeless, get healed in the moment, get saved. It's awesome. For Jesus, it's awesome. For the crowd, it's awesome. For the bleeding woman, but don't forget this interrupted a father on a mission to save his daughter, which leads us to the saddest verse in the whole story. Verse 49. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Now, if I was Jairus, rushing through the packed crowd, trying to get Jesus to my daughter, and Jesus stops to talk to an outcast woman, I'd be furious. Wouldn't you? Like, I'd be frustrated. I'd be confused. I'd be antsy looking at my watch, trying to rush Jesus along. Let's go. I mean, this interruption could not be at worst time. It intensifies this, this, um, the desperation. And in the midst of this interruption and this interaction with a woman, someone walks up and goes, hey, um, your, your, your daughter's dead. And I hope none of us ever have to hear those words. You don't get to see her become a young woman. You don't get to walk her down the aisle. You don't get to see her become a mom. All that's gone. She's dead. And it would seem that it was Jesus' fault for stopping. 
or it was the bleeding woman's fault for interrupting, or it was the crowd's fault for slowing him down. Uh, my son, Haddon, we've got two girls, Gracie and Eden, and I got a son named Haddon in the middle. And la- earlier last year, he came down with like a really, really bad respiratory thing. And, um, and he was coughing a lot and having trouble breathing. So we took him to the doctor several times and we had some breathing treatments we were doing with him. And on one day, it just got terribly bad. And um, his nostrils were flaring. His breathing was weird. It was so rapid, so many times a minute. Um, he started to develop a wheeze and his, um, and his skin started to kind of change colors. And so we called the emergency hotline that we have through a pediatrician. And they calmly said, ma'am, you need to get your son to the emergency room immediately. And so Kristen and I panicked get Haddon in the car, and we're starting to drive to the hospital. I think we have a video of Haddon in the, in the van. It's okay, Bubba. It's okay. It's okay, Bear. So, um, uh, that, that's him, and I, I've got my hands around his little chest, and I'm just begging Jesus in prayer, God, please just open up his lungs. Like, just help him breathe. I hate this. Just alleviate the discomfort. Heal my son, the one you love. Like, just praying. I know you can do it. I know you love doing miracles. I know you love healing. Can you do it? And I'm just holding on to my son. And I'm just picturing this moment. Imagine if as I'm praying for my son and Kristen is speeding towards St. E's, uh, the car stops. And it pulls over. And I look up, and we're not at the hospital. We're actually a few blocks down the road, and there's a homeless man. And Kristen starts to talk. She rolls the window, and she starts to talk to this homeless man. And she's saying, hey, what, what, what's your story? What's, what's going on? And, um, and he starts to explain, and she starts to talk with him. And they're going back and forth. And the whole time, I'm going, hey, sweetie, we, we need to get Haddon to, to the hospital. Like, he, he's, not, he's not okay. We need to get him to the ER. And she carries on the conversation, and they're going back and forth. And she goes, well, let, me, let me pray for you. And she reaches out, and she puts his hand, her hand on his shoulder, and she starts praying for him. And, 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 and she goes, hey, let me grab some money for you. Let me get you something to, to eat. And while she's doing that, Haddon breathes his last breath and dies. Could you imagine that happening? I'd be so, I don't even know what I would feel like. I just would be so confused and so angry. And it's like, I love that you helped him, but it wasn't life or death. But Haddon is. Like, you need to prioritize things. Like, Kristen, what are you doing? And in the same way, this is what's happening with Jesus and Jairus and the bleeding woman. Why are you stopping for, for her? She's, let's come back. Let's, you know, and, and in the interruption, he gets stopped and says, no, you, your daughter died during the delay. Um, and then the ruler says, the, or the other, the friend from his, Jairus' friend says, and don't bother the teacher anymore. Essentially, this is saying, hey, maybe on an off chance he could have healed your daughter, but now she's dead. There's no way. There's no coming back. She's dead. Don't, don't trouble him. Don't waste his time anymore. And in that hopeless moment, Jesus doesn't let Jairus sit in the news for even a split second. Look at verse 50. He says, he looks at Jairus and says, don't fear, only believe, she'll be well. Essentially, hey, um, the faith you just saw happen through the woman, different from the whole crowd, possess that. Do what she did. And I promise you, your daughter's going to be okay. He, he asked Jairus to, to believe that Jesus can do the unthinkable. Just have faith and see what happens. And Jairus does. He believes him. He takes him to his house, which means that he believed. Um, and, and desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And look what happens, 51 through the end. 
Um, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, don't weep for she isn't dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So let me bring all of the whole story back to that first point bring it all together. Desperate situations direct us to a dependable savior. So track with me on this. If Jairus's daughter never got sick to the point of death, Jairus would not have been on his face before Jesus expressing faith in him. You track with me on that? If his daughter was safe and healthy, most likely it's fair to assume that Jairus would have been like every other ruler of the synagogue hateful towards Jesus, confused by Jesus, resistant towards Jesus. And because Jesus allowed, like however it happened, Jairus' daughter to get sick, it led him to Jesus. Number two, if the bleeding woman would have been healed by a doctor, she never would have found herself reaching out in faith and having the words from Jesus speak over her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. She would probably be with her family doing normal things. Or if a doctor healed her, or if it never happened, she wouldn't find herself desperate for Jesus, right? Or let's go even a step further and say, if Jesus neglected that touch and rushed towards Jairus' daughter, got there in time and healed her, if if she never died, all Jairus would have known about Jesus was that he was a miraculous healer, but he would not have known that Jesus had the power to resurrect. You track with me? Desperate situations direct us to a dependable savior. So here's my application. Don't despise desperate situations. Don't despise what you don't currently understand. Jesus is using it. It can direct you to him. And so the paradigm shift for all of us is don't question God in trials. Come to God in trials. Like let those things, when you look out horizontally and there's nothing you can do and there's no one that can help you, those are the moments when you're forced to look vertically up to God and go, you just have to do what no one else can. And so for you, can you think back to a moment to a time when you were desperate, you had no other way to help. You had no other option. And God had led your eyes upward to trust in him. Or maybe that hasn't happened yet. And God's saying, do it. Don't, you don't have to look horizontally and be hopeless. Look vertical. Look up at me. And I want to give you grace. I want to give you favor. I want to heal. I want to walk with you. Um, uh, Haddon, we did get to the emergency room in time. And um, you know, he was only like eight months. He's just a tiny little kid. And we you know, give him to him and they're running all these tests and there's all these tubes and all these things. And it, it found out that it was a, honestly a culmination of like RSV and bronchiolitis, bronchiolitis and um, pneumonia all, all in one. I mean, it was just like a terrible, terrible, terrible trifecta. And he couldn't breathe on his own. And so they were just pumping uh, so much oxygen in and helping him breathing kind of for him. And... Um, and uh, we were praying. He was in the hospital for six days. And on the fifth day, it hadn't gotten any better. There was no improvement at all because you just kind of have to let it ride out, you know? And so we're praying. I'm praying hard every day. I'm inviting our staff team and some close friends and family. And on the fifth day, and I don't know why, but I'm kind of reluctant to just like put a bunch of prayer requests out on like social media or whatever. And so I just felt like I don't even know. Everyone that like is close to me is praying, but I probably need to invite like our church into this. And so I think we sent an email 
out to pray for Haddon. I think I maybe posted on my social media and hundreds and hundreds of people responded and they were praying. And by that night, Haddon got to be off oxygen. Is that crazy? Like he had just only gotten worse. And the next day we got to go home. And I was like, and I don't know about you guys, but I just sometimes think prayer doesn't do anything. Like, I just have to confess that. Like, I just feel like, man, I don't know if God, God's gonna do what God's gonna do. And yet God used our church and used the, my friends, other friends outside of my normal network to pray. And Jesus healed Haddon, I think because of it. So that desperate situation showed me how dependable God was and particularly through the prayer of his people, right? Um, and so it's significant. So what is it for, for you? Last thing I wanna point out, to conclude, is one of my favorite parts of this story is how different Jairus and the bleeding woman are. Jairus' daughters, 12 years old, you know, they have, so, they have some similarities, right? And the woman had been bleeding for 12 years, but he's famous. Like he's a small town, like got, everyone knows him and she's totally forgotten. He's an insider and she's an outsider. He's got family and she's completely alone. He is clean and she is the epitome of unclean. He's a prestigious man and she's a poor woman. Endless differences, but what do they have in common? They can't help themselves. They've tried everything else. And their only option is Jesus. And I want you to know that's our story. This room could not be more different of people. I know, I know we're in Lincoln, Nebraska at the same time of the moment, but I just want you to know that this room could not be more different. Economically, there are people that are very wealthy and there are people that just lost their house this week. Like there are people in our church that leverage their whole weekend to serve people and, and preach the gospel and, and grow in faith. And there are people who use their weekend to get wasted. There are people in the room who are high up in politics and, and, and successful in that, and there are people in the room that are battling with a felony. Like, the room could not be any more different, and yet we have this one commonality, and it's our dependence on Jesus. That's the thing that's uniting. That's the thing that's bonding, is that we can't go a moment without him. And there is no greater expression of our dependence than salvation. You can't help yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't get good enough for God. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that God knew that and came down in our desperate story. And in the most desperate display of, of love, Jesus is on the cross dying willingly for the joy set before him for you and I. The worst day in history becomes the best day in history. God's son dies. And yet because he dies, he raises three days later and all of us get to live in him simply by faith alone. Not morality, not law, not accomplishing religious achievements, but simply by faith in Jesus. That's what we have in common. Our dependence on Jesus to save us and not to save us, but to sustain us. And so this is, this is the Jesus that we worship. And so my plea is that we would know that desperate situations can direct us to a dependable savior. Amen, let's pray. Jesus, thank you. You're gracious and you're good. We haven't deserved a single ounce of it. And yet this morning we stand under the waterfall of your grace. Um, and so I, I do pray, um, uh, Jesus, that you would help us. I just, I just can't help but think that there are people in the room who are affiliated with you, Jesus, who are maybe excited about you, that are, have obviously reoriented their morning to come this morning. And maybe they are just simply churchgoers and they're brushing up against you, but your power has never gone out. Your grace has never gone out. Your gospel has never actually sunk into their hearts. And so I pray, like Mitch's story, that it would be replicated across the room right now, Jesus, that people would go, I am done keeping you at a distance. I am done brushing up against you. I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want to trust that even in my brokenness, in the weakness of who I am, that you want me, that you died for me, 
that this morning, the people would hear the words over their soul, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Would you save? Would you do that in this morning? And then for all, all of us, Jesus, this reality that we wouldn't despise desperate situations, but we'd use them to direct us to you. I know that uh, you didn't cause, you don't, you didn't cause Jairus' daughter to get sick, but you can, in your sovereignty and providence, you can cause it to, you caused it to use, um, to lead Jairus to yourself. And I pray that you do that in the moment. Whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're depending on right now, whatever we're, uh, feels hopeless, I pray that you would use it and cause it to actually lead us closer to you, Jesus. And so we love you. We're grateful in your awesome name. Amen.